Amen to that. Of all the minor prophets in the Old Testament, my favorite is Habakkuk. I know I've shared that before, and that's a little bit unusual. I mean, how many people say, yeah, this week I, I opened up my Bible and dug into Habakkuk? But I've always loved the book because of a couple reasons. First of all, because of its unusual form. It is something of a give-and-take conversation between God and his prophet, which makes it unique and interesting. I also love how honest Habakkuk is and authentic he is with the questions that he has for God, how he struggles with the answers that he gets in return from God. And as I read it, I sort of identify with him in the sense that there are many times when I don't fully understand the plans and the ways of God. Can anybody else agree with that? Say amen. Habakkuk's prophecy dates back to 600 BC at a very low time in the history of, of Judah. The great reformer, King Josiah, had been killed in battle with the Egyptians, and now it seemed as if Judah just simply could not recover from that loss, either emotionally or spiritually. And slowly, wickedness came back into the land, and the leadership of Josiah's son, Jehoiakim, was marked by foolishness and idolatry. And so Habakkuk protested to God, not about the sin of the surrounding nations, but about the sin of his own people, Judah. And he asked about why God had not corrected his people. He said, Lord, your law is, is broken every day. Corruption and injustice fill the land. Why have you not corrected your people? Why have you not moved in some way to save us? And sometimes when you ask a difficult question of God, you get a difficult answer in return. And God responded in a way that Habakkuk never would have imagined. God said, I am going to send upon Judah a cruel and pagan army, the Babylonians, that will sweep into Judah and take the people into captivity. And of course, this horrified Habakkuk, you can imagine. Why would God allow, he, he, said, he, he said to God, why would you allow a pagan wicked people to discipline your own people? As bad as we are, they're far worse. It just didn't make sense to Habakkuk. And so God assured his prophet of two things. Number one, I will not excuse away the sins of the Babylonians. There will come a day when I will punish them for their wickedness and their idolatry. And number two, there is coming a day when I will restore Judah, when I will bring her back into the land and pour out my blessings upon her. But here's the key, you guys. For now, God says to Habakkuk, understand that my plan is fixed. It is coming without delay. And in spite of your protest. And in spite of your inability to fully understand my ways, this will happen. And in chapter 2, verse 4, God's advice to Habakkuk in the midst of the confusion and the fear was simply this. Habakkuk 2, 4. There it is. The righteous will live by faith. Habakkuk might never see the day of Israel being restored. May never see the day of God's blessings poured out upon the land again. But by faith, he will have to trust in the promises of God. By faith, he will have to trust that God is going to do what he says he's going to do. By faith, he is going to have to endure the horrors and the difficulties of an army coming down upon his own people and taking them captive. By faith, he is going to have to accept that that is God's will for him and for Judah. 
The righteous man and woman will live by faith day by day, trusting in God's promises regardless of the circumstances. And so it is for you and me today. A lot of years have passed since Habakkuk, but the same is true of every New Testament saint. All who are justified by faith must continue to live by faith. And in case you haven't noticed looking around, we live in perilous times today. I don't have to tell you how divided our country is, how it seems that we're unraveling, becoming unhinged as a nation. And I can't predict the future any more than Habakkuk could back in his day, but I couldn't help thinking as I was studying it this week that we Americans may soon find ourselves in a situation like Judah did in 600 B.C. We would acknowledge that God has been gracious and patient with America for almost 250 years now, and yet we continue to turn away from him and to pursue wickedness. So what will happen if or when God chooses to discipline us as a country? The righteous will live by faith no matter the circumstances. Will we continue to trust God, trust his purposes, trust his will for us, and live obedient lives that are fully surrendered to him? Grab your Bibles. Let's turn to Romans chapter 1. Boy, it got quiet in here. We sang about Christ's return, the sword of fury. And now we get this, right? It's good. It's good, to, it's good to think this through. It's good to really ponder where we are as a nation and where our faith lies. This morning, we are finishing Paul's introduction in his letter to the Roman church. Next time, we're going to be diving into the first, what I call a book within a book. And that is the book of sin, where Paul is going to go through a long discourse on the universal nature of sin. But this is the end of the introduction, and so far we've looked at verses 1 to 15, basically Paul's greeting, and some personal comments about his plans, and now today we come to two of the most famous verses in all the New Testament, verses 16 and 17, and these wrap up his introduction. And in the minds of many scholars, by the way, these two verses represent the basic thesis statement of the entire letter, if you can imagine. The reason scholars believe that is there's There's so much packed into these two verses that Paul is going to continue to flesh out in various parts of the letter. So we'll we'll touch on some of these things today. We won't get into all of it because we're going to see it come come up over and over again in the letter to the Romans. So let's dive in. Actually, let's back up to verse 14 so that we catch the flow of what Paul is saying here. Romans 1.14, hear the word of the Lord. I am under obligation, and we looked at that two weeks ago about what that means, under obligation, or I'm a debtor to both Greeks and to barbarians, both to, both to the wise and to the foolish. So for my part, I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, and who do you think wrote this? Habakkuk, this is why I opened with that, okay. Here's the quote from Habakkuk. As it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. Now, the structure of what Paul says in these two verses is important and actually not very hard to see. So let me just lay it out for you. By the way, when you see the word for in Scripture, especially in the NAS, which it's used often, you can sort of substitute the word because in there. Okay, so Paul is eager to preach in Rome. Why? 
Because he's not ashamed of the gospel. Paul's not ashamed of the gospel. Why? Because in the gospel, we find God's power for salvation. The gospel has the power for salvation. Why? Because it manifests in us the righteousness of God. That's the basic outline. Now, we need to to kind of work through that, but a number of things we're going to talk about here this morning. What does it mean to not be ashamed of the gospel? What exactly is the righteousness of God that's being revealed in the gospel? And lastly, how does our faith, our faith, fit into this picture of all that God is doing? So let me start, first of all, by making a sort of an observation that comes out of verse 15. The gospel is for believers. Look again at verse 15. Paul says, I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Now, who's the you there? The saints in the Roman church, believers, men and women who we found out in verse 8, their faith is, is so strong that it's being reported all over the ancient world. We shouldn't be surprised by this. Sometimes we, we make the mistake of thinking, well, the gospel is for the lost. We, we, we preach the gospel to the lost and that is it. Why would a believer need to hear the gospel? Well, it's a rhetorical question, isn't it? Because here at Oak Hill, we talk about this all the time, how we need to be reminded about the basics of the gospel. We need to preach the gospel to ourselves daily because the gospel is not just the power for salvation, but the power for sanctification as well. We need to be reminded about the story, and that's why we showed that video earlier in the service. The story of God. And you say, well, oh, come on, Jeff. That was a pretty simple video. I've seen that before. I've heard that message before. I'm here to tell you, watch it again. Listen to it again. Who among us can actually get tired of hearing the story of God, about the grace that he's poured out, about the work that he's done in his son to save us from his wrath? Like Paul, I'm always eager to see the gospel presented here on Sundays. Well, it's why we call ourselves a gospel-centered church, because we want to see the gospel in every prayer that we say, in every song that we sing, in every message that is preached, and we want to see the gospel lived out in the fellowship, the, I would say, very strong and loving fellowship that we have here at Oak Hill. That's why Paul wanted to come to Rome, to preach the gospel, to bring the saints a reminder of the good news of what Christ had done for them, and to build their faith and to strengthen them and to to nudge them on with a holy nudge towards growth and maturity. So don't ever make the mistake of thinking, well, that's the gospel. That's that really simple message that's for the lost. No, 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 it's for us. And it's not the simple stuff. I said this a few weeks ago. It's the deep stuff that we need to know and hear over and over again. All right, let's dive into the meat of the passage here in verse, verse 16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel... Paul says, I'm eager to come to Rome and to preach the gospel because I'm not ashamed of it. Now, why would Paul have to make such a statement? I looked up the English word ashamed in a couple of dictionary sources this week. And what I found is that that word ashamed is always connected to fear. It's a fear of being embarrassed, a fear of being humiliated, a fear of being attacked, And I think it's a fear that we've all experienced at some point in our lives. I think this is common to man. Maybe it was back in your your those awkward days in middle school. Right? Oh yeah. 
Or it was back during your, your high school days. That time, and by the way, I don't think adults are above this at all. I think we all still struggle with it to some extent. We're trying not to stand out from the crowd in any negative way. Just, just trying to fit in, you know, like one of the cool kids. Because nobody likes to be laughed at or insulted. I think the fear of being ashamed, the fear of embarrassment, humiliation, runs strong in all of us. And so when we talk about declaring an unpopular, countercultural message like the gospel, there is a personal risk involved, isn't there? The risk of being shamed. And what that risk that Paul's talking about here was enhanced because of the people that he was writing to. They lived in Rome, the capital of the civilized world in the first century, the very center of culture and sophistication. In a city like Rome, Paul knew that most people that he was writing to would shy away from preaching the gospel in all of its fullness. Keep this in mind, in the first century, there was only one people group that the Romans despised more than the Jews, and that was Christians. The Romans hated them both. They hated both of these groups. And so here's Paul, a converted Jew, who wants to come to Rome with this message. Look to a Galilean savior, right? Look to a man from Galilee who was executed by the Roman government in the most humiliating way possible by being crucified. How's that going to play in Rome? Just the crucifixion alone would have been so offensive to a Roman audience. How could a crucified criminal be considered a savior? And by the way, declaring such a message in Rome would also guarantee persecution. Remember, Rome was steeped in pagan religious tradition. Anything, anybody that didn't participate in that traditional Roman religion was seen as an enemy of the state. So in, a, in an atmosphere like that, for you to stand up and to say, I follow a Galilean savior, King Jesus is likely to get you beaten or arrested or even worse, put to death. And so Paul's statement of the believers in Rome was for him and for his audience an important display of trust. I'm eager to come to your great city and I have no fear, he says, of being embarrassed. No fear of being humiliated. No fear of physical threats against my life because of this life-saving message. I am not ashamed of it. This was how Paul lived his life, without fear. And now we have, a, we have this idea in the church today that if I just do that, if I step out in faith, well, then God's going to prevent me from getting into any trouble. It's sort of the, the Christian movie version of, of, of our walk with Christ. See, if I, go, if I step out in faith and I just do what God says, well, he'll protect me and nothing bad will happen. Is that what happened in Paul's life? Not at all. He lived his life without fear, but it came at a great personal and physical cost to him. Here's how he described his humiliations in 2 Corinthians 6. In beatings, in imprisonment, being lashed by the whip, stoned by various mobs, shipwrecked, in danger from robbers, in danger from both his countrymen, the Jews, and from Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea. Paul was willing to endure it all for the sake of the gospel. Unlike most of us, and I include myself in that, Paul didn't spend a whole lot of emotional time thinking, how can I win the approval of other people? 
That's not what he was about. Paul looked out at the world and rather seeking the approval of the world, he was willing to suffer attacks from the world, slander from the world, and at the same time, and this is the amazing thing, while he's willing to suffer these attacks from them, at the same time, out of compassion and love, he continued to feel obligated to them because of the gospel. That's a mindset we need to adopt today. How many guys, you look out at our world today, you read the news, you watch cable TV, you go on social media, and it makes you angry. It makes you angry, doesn't it? Come on. Angry at the people around us who are so lost and so, so hostile to everything that is true and right and moral. Here's the challenging question. Do you have contempt for them? Or do you have compassion for them? Because they're lost. Because you too were once that rebellious and that lost. We have a tendency to have contempt for them, not compassion. And here's the thing. Paul was only imitating Jesus in this, wasn't he? Rhetorical question. Did Jesus have any experience with shame? Yeah. Jesus knew something about persecution and shame. Falsely accused of crimes against the Jewish law, falsely accused of crimes against Rome, beaten with rods, scourged by the whip, ridiculed, taunted, spit on, and in his darkest hour, abandoned by his closest friends and nailed to a cross. And what did Jesus do with all that shame that was coming at him? Hebrews 12, 2 says this, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. What does all that mean? It means that when all of this this shame was coming at Jesus, and with it the temptation for him to abandon his mission, he despised the shame. He said, I will not yield to it. The shame was stripping away every bit of human support that he had on the earth. All of his friends, his comfort, his reputation, everything was being destroyed, but Jesus would not give in. He would not be ruled by shame in that moment. And for the the long-term joy of going to the cross and paying the ransom for sin so that others might live, he endured all of that pain and rejection, and he set his heart on fulfilling the will of his Father. That's what Jesus did with shame. And though he was being shamed, Jesus was not ashamed of his father in heaven. He knew that his father had all the power to raise him from the dead. That's what got him through it. His relationship with his father, knowing that this was temporary, that he was paying the sins for mankind, and that his father would vindicate him and raise him from the dead and sit him at his right hand. So apply that to us. How do we then overcome the feelings of fear when we are shamed for believing the gospel? When we are shamed by people around us for proclaiming the truth? We imitate Jesus. We imitate Paul. Out of compassion and love, we focus not on the pain that we are receiving. We focus on the power of the gospel to save sinners from God's wrath, even the very ones who are persecuting us. We don't get angry. We get compassionate. 
It's hard. I, look, I, I'm the first one. I wrote this down and I said, do I believe this? <laughs> do I live this myself? This is hard. That's what Jesus did. That's what Paul showed us. In a city like Los Angeles, a city of coastal elites, right, where liberal thinking rules the day, much like in Rome in the first century, you and I are often going to feel a twinge of reluctance and fear when it comes to sharing our faith. It's a great challenge. We have to embrace this. In the midst of that fear, in the midst of that shame that we're afraid that we might receive, we can't try to sell the gospel by either glossing over the really hard parts or by just emphasizing the really good parts of Christianity. When we do that, we fall into the sin of being ashamed of the gospel. Remember this. Christ didn't die on the cross if we're all just basically good people that need a little encouragement. Right? The cross is unnecessary if we just need a little encouragement to, in our own strength, get right with God. A crucified Savior is unnecessary if our main need in life is just to polish up our self-esteem and to learn some helpful hints about how to live a happier life. But too many times, that's the gospel that we're out there selling, folks, without the hard truth. The full story is that we need a Savior who was crucified in all of its gruesomeness for our sins because all of us by nature are ungodly rebels. We are rightfully under the threat of God's wrath. And that message, if you go out there and deliver it in a city like Rome or a city in Los Angeles, and you tell people that's who you are, an ungodly rebel, and the wrath of God hangs over your head, that will not be popular, (laughs) to say the least. That will not necessarily be well received. It will be offensive. But the gospel is only good news to the person who realizes that he needs to repent and be saved by something greater than himself, by someone greater than himself. That that is his greatest need, that the wrath of God indeed hangs over his head and he needs a savior. Only then is it good news, folks. Other than that, it's just a a pump you up message. So let's not be ashamed of this full gospel that's relayed to us. Now, Paul tells us right there in verse 16 why he's not afraid. Why he's not ashamed of the gospel. And here's the answer. Because it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Paul, why are you not ashamed of this? Because this is the power of God to save people. Why would I be ashamed of a message like that? Why are we ashamed by it? Are we going to suffer for declaring the gospel? Probably. In some form or another. Less here in America than maybe in a place like China or some other place across the globe. But yes, it's possible that we'll suffer. Will we be misunderstood and maligned? Yeah, probably. Know that you'll be shamed by lost people who are suddenly confronted in their lostness. When you tell them that they're living under the wrath of God, expect them to react. Expect them to call you ignorant. Expect them to call you intolerant. Expect them to call you anti-science. Whatever it might be, expect a reaction. 
But rely on what Paul is saying here in verse 16. It's the most loving thing in the world to tell the truth about God and to tell the truth about the way to eternal life. It's the power of God unto salvation. And for those whom God is drawing to himself, the gospel will bring about a harvest of faith. Isn't this one of the best news about evangelism? Regardless of how poorly we explain the message, there is a promise of a harvest of faith. It's guaranteed. Because God is committed to drawing and saving his elect. Out of compassion for the sake and for the sake of love, if we truly believe that the gospel is the power of God for salvation, we are obligated to share the truth with the lost people in our lives. And we have to be willing to despise the shame in that. Are you willing? Maybe you can say that this morning, but this week when you hit Starbucks and an opportunity presents itself, or you're in the office place around the water cooler and you have a chance to share the gospel, will you despise the shame that might come your way in delivering this message of love and compassion? By the way, notice Paul's language here. The gospel doesn't just tell people about the power of God. Paul says it is the power of God. It is the power of God for salvation. You see it there? That means that salvation isn't something that sinners can reach by their own effort. Right? Or by their good works. Salvation isn't some type of joint project where God says, Hey, look. Hey, uh, Scott. I've done my part. Now it's up to you. You finish the job. That is not the way scripture describes salvation. It comes only by God's power through the gospel. It's a monergistic work of the Lord. When Jesus Christ cried out in this great story, Lazarus, come forth. And all the bystanders looked at him and said, is he crazy? Guy's been dead for days. Remember the story? The power of God imparted life to Lazarus. The word of Christ imparted life to him. And that's what the gospel is like. It raises dead people who cannot raise themselves. When the rich young ruler walked away from eternal life, Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, it's hard for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of heaven. And the disciples were so confused and astonished, and they said, Well, then who can be saved? Who can be saved? What a great question. Who then can be saved? And what does Jesus say? With man, this is what? Impossible. Did you hear that? With man, salvation is, say it again, Impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Salvation, this is what it's saying, is beyond the power of man. It requires the very power of God to impart new life to people who are utterly dead in their sins. I cannot stress that enough. This is why we worship with abandon. Because we understand we didn't have a part in being saved. We were just dead. God said, I'm going to raise you from the dead so that you'll have no room to boast When you see that it's my work and my work alone. That's the amen moment. Praise God, right? So the preaching of the gospel doesn't just make salvation possible. It affects salvation in those who are being called by God. Friends, don't be ashamed of the gospel. You possess the message of life and death. Share it. If you believe that that's true, share it. You possess the only message that in the end will be victorious. How can you keep it to yourself? 
You may have heard this before, but it's, it's worth repeating. Dwight L. Moody used to compare the gospel message with a lion. Do you remember what his advice was? Just open the cage and get out of the way. The lion is going to do what the lion does. A lot of us won't open the cage. We're just not opening the cage. In the short term, yes, you may be shamed by the world, but for the joy of salvation that has been secured for you, take up your cross, follow Jesus as Lord, and despise the shame that may come your way. Share the good news. Amen? Look at verse 17. Really important statement here. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is what? Revealed. Not grabbed a hold of by man, but revealed to man. In the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. Now, this is one of those times where it's, it's interesting to notice what, what Paul doesn't say in this verse. Here's what he doesn't say. For in the gospel, the love of God is revealed. He says the righteousness of God, not the love of God. Now, is the love of God a part of the gospel? Of course. But he says that here for a reason. Most unbelievers, by the way, who seem to love all the loving things about God. Maybe you know some of these guys. They love the love of God, but they don't want to talk about the other stuff, right? The justice and the wrath of God and his, his holy standard. They just love to talk about the love. Those folks would be extremely pleased if the text here said, for in the gospel, the love of God is revealed. Then they could go on talking about love, you know, hashtag love wins, and, and twist the scriptures up to mean whatever they want it to mean. But it says righteousness. And here we come to a great puzzle. Maybe you've not thought of this before. But this is a great puzzle. How is it possibly good news that the righteousness of God has been revealed to mankind? How is that good news? When you think about God's righteousness, how is that good? For a sinner, the righteousness of God is a huge problem, is it not? It's a huge stumbling block. If God is perfectly holy and perfectly righteous, and we are utterly unholy and unrighteous, we're in a fix. We have a real problem. And if our unrighteousness brings about the wrath of God, then how is the revelation of God's righteousness good news for mankind? See, this is, I know I mentioned in our first series, our first message in this series, how much this one verse impacted the life of Martin Luther. In fact, you could make the statement that it was verses 16 and 17 that really lit the fire of the entire Protestant Reformation. Because Luther here, he hated the book of Romans until he was saved, until the Lord opened his eyes to see the truth about this verse. Here's what he wrote about this verse. He said, I had always been captivated with an extraordinary ardor for understanding Paul in his epistle to the Romans. But a single word in chapter 1 stood in my way. See, he took the word very, very seriously, didn't he? I hated that word righteousness because I had been taught to understand that the righteousness in Romans 1 is the righteousness with which God punishes the sinner. So all he saw in this verse was the righteousness of God is revealed and now I'm doomed. And by the way, that's a right understanding if you don't understand the full measure of what's happening here. That's a true thing. Righteousness of God is revealed. Sinners are in trouble. But then 
He found the truth in that passage. And here's the answer to the puzzle. This is why that's actually good news. God is demanding a righteousness from us that we don't have. Isn't that true? That's hard for people to grasp. Wait, you're saying that God is demanding something that we don't possibly have? That's what I'm saying. That's what the Bible tells us. Right? So the only hope for us is that God himself would give us the very righteousness that he demands. Now that changes things, doesn't it? That would be good news. And that's exactly what he does. That is the heart of the gospel, folks. That is the power of God at work. So catch this. What is revealed in the gospel is the righteousness of God for us, for us, that he demanded from us. What we had to have, but could not supply ourselves, could not produce ourselves, God gives to us. You ready for this? He gives us his own righteousness. Mind blown, right? He gives us his own righteousness. It's God's righteousness given to the sinner who repents and trusts in him. Folks, it's not even the the righteousness of the most holy man or woman that's ever walked the earth. Even that would fall short of the standard, right? You say, well, I want the, I want the, the, the righteousness of that person. Eh. Not enough. It's God's own righteousness. Luther actually called it an alien righteousness, not like people from space. An alien, in other words, it's not ours. It comes from outside of us. It belongs to another But it's been given to us. What was once a demand, listen to this, what was once a demand has become a gift that God has given to you and to me. Wow. The power, the gospel has the power for salvation. Why? Because it manifests in us the very righteousness of God. Amen. And that brings us back to our final question. Back to Habakkuk. Where does our faith fit into this? Because we've been talking about all this work that God does. What about our faith? Let's look at some practical application. Look back at verse 17. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, what does it say? From faith to faith. And the best way to understand that is simply from beginning to end. From beginning to end, because of the gospel, because God draws us to himself and gives us the gift of faith, right? We don't produce the gift of faith. It's given to us. Because of that, we begin our lives as born-again believers by faith, and we keep living each and every day to the end by, by faith. By faith. The life of a Christ follower is from beginning to end live by faith. As Habakkuk put it, the man who is made righteous by God, the man who is given the righteousness of God, he shall live by his faith. I I don't care if that's Judah 600 BC or America 2017. The righteous man, the righteous woman shall live by faith. Now, take the whole verse into account here and you'll see a very subtle but important shift in Paul's words. In the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, right? So here he's talking about God's righteousness And then, watch what comes next. As it is written, the righteous man shall live by faith. So Paul went from the righteousness of God to suddenly talking about a righteous man. Wait, who's righteous? Who is righteous among us? The man who now possesses the righteousness of God. 
That tells us something very important. It came from God. The power of the gospel for salvation. That righteousness was given to the righteous man. What an amazing truth. As you sit here today, if you know, listen, if you're sitting here today, you don't know Jesus yet, personally, as Savior or Lord, I I hope you've heard the really difficult and challenging news that the wrath of God hangs over your head. If you haven't bowed your knee in submission, trusted him alone, you're not in a good spot. I don't know how else to say that in a nice way. But if you have bowed your knee, if you have trusted in him alone, do you see the beauty in this? This is why we keep plumbing the depths of the gospel, folks. It just gets more beautiful every time we look at it. You have the righteousness of God. And this is what we need to feed on each and every day. To look at the amazing truths of the gospel every day. To be encouraged by it. To be emboldened by it. So that we'll get out there and share the good news. Not only saved by faith, but we go on living by faith. If you look at verse 16 again, Paul says, The gospel is the power of God for salvation for all who go on believing. It's in the present tense. That means we're actively believing right now. Actively believing. That's the gospel. That's the power. It's a continuous action that we will keep doing for the rest of our days. Who gets saved in the end? Those who have persevering faith. Those who make it to the end and are saved for all eternity, which then proves that that moment in time when you were saved was real and authentic. Persevering faith. This reminds me of something else Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 15. Listen to what he says. He says, I make known to you, brothers, the gospel which I preach to you, which also you received, in which you also stand, by which you are also saved. If, he says, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. So if we give up and walk away, our supposed faith will have been proven to be vain or empty or dead. What saves us is persevering faith, getting to the end of our lives Believing the gospel. Now that doesn't mean that it's dependent upon us. If we're truly elect and truly saved, it's God himself who will give us the power to keep on believing. Even that he handles for us. We go on believing. Here's how John Piper puts it. He says, the gospel saves believers because the gospel keeps believers believing. Isn't that great? Praise the Lord. That's the assurance that we talk about. Let me say it again. The gospel saves believers because the gospel keeps believers believing. Now, let's, let's be real for a second as I close this thing. All that believing and that faith is not going to be perfect, is it? There are going to be moments of doubt in our lives. We will continue to wrestle with sin as long as we live in these mortal bodies. And yes, we will at times lose that battle. But our eternal life in Christ doesn't hang on how we perform. It does not hang on our ability to win every battle. If it did, we would all despair. We would all give up. We would all walk away. What then will keep us in the fight? The power of God. The power of God. In the gospel, we we see revealed every day that our standing before him is not based on our righteousness, but on his. And by his power, he will keep us there until the end. 
And when we see that over and over in the gospel, as we look at it and study it and go deeper day after day, as long as we live, God is going to constantly, by his spirit, renew and sustain our faith so that we endure until the end. So here's the thing, you guys. Every time you read scripture and you see the Bible says, do this or think this way, don't go down this road. Don't say to yourself, well, I have to do this in order to take away my guilt. Or I have to think that way to earn God's forgiveness. Or I have to do all of these things to be assured of a right standing with God. That is, that is, that is a doctrine of works. Here's what you need to think. I will do this because my guilt is already removed. I long to do this because I want to worship my Savior. Because I'm already forgiven. Because I already have the gift of God's righteousness. And because of that, I know that God is is for me, and he is with me, and he will help me. Be not ashamed of the gospel, brothers and sisters. It is the power of God working in you. It is the power of God that saves you day by day. And now that you've been given God's righteousness, feed on it. Worship God because of it, and live it out every day. Amen? Let's bow our heads. Lord, this is an amazing truth. How in in two verses, God, you can pack so much powerful meaning in there through Paul, by your spirit, that would encourage us so much, that would lead us to worship you with such passion because it's beginning to sink in to our hearts and minds. And this is my prayer for us, that it would go even deeper into our hearts and minds, how much you have really done for us and how little we deserved it. That we would truly understand how desperate we are as as sinners before you, but sinners saved by your grace. And that because of that, we would just, we would so long to worship you and so long to be with fellow believers, practicing for what's to come in heaven. May that be manifested in, in my life, and in the life of this church. All for your glory, Lord, because you deserve it. And so we continue to worship you in prayer, in the word, in giving, and in singing. Be glorified in us, Lord. We love you. Amen.